0: Morning, church. We have also a big announcement. Maybe some of you who are at the members' meeting were able to be there, heard, but others may not know this. This coming Friday, not today, but the next coming Friday, October the first, we will have our first in-person service in Rues. So, yeah, praise God. So God is doing great things. It's, I'm very happy, very excited to be here, able to share God's word with you this morning. So let's just go to the Lord one more time. I want to share a quick prayer, and then we'll begin into the text. Father, we just thank you so much uh, this morning for your word. God, call my spirit. Strengthen uh, your people to be able to understand the things that are said and apply them to their lives. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you because it's only through you that any of this can be done. So we just we give you this time. Speak to us. Amen. Amen. Uh, Did you, have you ever heard of the giant sequoia tree? The giant sequoia tree is a really impressive tree. Um, Honestly, if you see one of these things in person, it makes you feel very small and insignificant. Just imagine a tree that is 1,500 years old on average. Okay, it can be very, very old. 75 meters tall. I mean, that's just crazy to think about that these things are so big in these groves, you know. And you see these, and and you're looking at a grove, maybe 20 of these trees, they're very old, they're very tall, and you think to yourself, these trees exist because they must have very deep roots, right? Really deep roots. But actually, that's not the case at all. The sequoia tree is 75 meters tall, but its roots only go about five meters deep into the ground. You see, the strength of the sequoia tree grove is actually in other sequoia trees. The sequoia has a very interesting thing that its roots grow outward, connecting it to other sequoia trees. And so it begins to wrap around the trees all surrounding it, stretching all. It's amazing. And these things, when the wind blows and when the ground shakes, they hold strong. Not because of some deep root, but because of each other. It's one of the most beautiful examples, I think, in the world of community, of what God intends his community, his people to be like. And this morning, we're going to take a look at what it is to be a community for Jesus, a community of disciples, a community that is disciple making. And one thing you should be very clear about is you were not intended to do this alone. We're not spiritual islands. We're connected And when our gospel roots find each other and lock around each other, we find a strength that is much more powerful than we are by ourselves. So this morning, I want to open a very familiar passage. I'm not doing it because I believe I'm teaching many of you something new. I'm doing it because I believe I'm reminding you of what Jesus Christ's vision is for his church, what his mission is. For his church. So I stand today feeling much like a representative for Christ. And I have a message for you from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Would you join me opening your Bibles? And we're going to read this passage. It says Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This passage lays out three very clear sections, very easy to follow. And there are basically three ideas I want to share with you today, and they come from the text. As a community of disciples, we must do these three things. Number one, we must recognize the authority of Christ is behind disciple making. Number two, we must focus our efforts on making disciples. And number three, we must depend on Jesus because he's with us to make disciples. Very simple. Let's open the text and let's get in, get into the passage. It says in verses 16 and 17, starting with the idea of recognizing the authority of Christ. It says in verses 16 and 17, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. There are three things I want to point out to this very quickly in this little section that help us to focus the context, okay? To get an idea of what's going on before Jesus gives this famous command. And those three words are 11. Why? 11 disciples. If you read that, you're immediately thinking, where's the 12th guy, right? And if you haven't been reading this story, you know there's been 12, there's been 12, there's been 12. But what has happened is Judas has betrayed them. He's abandoned them. And so it's immediately letting you know the, the group of people that are receiving this amazing command, they're hurting. They've been abandoned by their, one of their closest companions and brothers. The second word coming in the text is coming from the mountain of Galilee. Just think about it with me. How many of you would, after resurrecting from the dead, would imagine Jesus would pick a remote mountain somewhere in Galilee to appear to people? I mean, if we were in charge of this Christianity thing, we would probably pick downtown Jerusalem, right? I'm going to pick the center. I'm going to show everybody who I am. I'm going to go to the Roman authorities. I'm going to appear and let everybody see who I am. That's not the plan at all. And this mountain in Galilee, it's obscure. It's so obscure, you don't even know the name of it. It's just some hill out in the middle of Galilee. But this is exactly where God picks. This is the place He chooses. And I think so often we think... We have a better idea of which direction the church should go in or the plan it should take or how things should work. But the truth is, we just follow God. We listen to him. We follow him. And this is what he's he's going to be telling his disciples in just a few moments. And the third detail that comes from the text, and you probably saw this just reading through it. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. That's an interesting statement. You've got a guy who's just been dead for three days. He resurrects from the dead. says that as he appears to his disciples, some of them doubt and some of them worship. Now, if you pay attention to the text, there's a little bit of disagreement amongst like scholars, people who study this. Were these the 11 that doubted or were these others that were there as well? Remember, Jesus appeared at one time, according to Paul, to 500 people at once. Was that this moment? We don't, we don't know exactly. But the text itself says something that makes people think there were others there. Pay attention. It says they worshipped him, but some doubted, as if there could be two groups here. The idea is not important, whether it was a big group of disciples, whether it was smaller. The idea is this, that even amongst the community seeing, you're seeing a God resurrected from the dead. It was Complicated. It was difficult. And the reason I share these three details, the reason I believe Matthew includes them in his gospel, is he's trying to teach us something. And here's the lesson. The church that Jesus chooses to transform the world was not a perfect church. There were Judases that were abandoning. They were in the middle of an obscure place that nobody was paying attention to. And the detail that I just shared, some of them had doubts This is what it is sometimes in the Christian community. But still, with all of their weakness, he calls them. And he brings them this great commandment, this great commission. It's to this crowd at this place in this state of mind that Jesus gives his declaration of authority. What does he say? In verse 18, he leaves us no doubt. He says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been Given to me. At first glance, this may seem simple, right? You're thinking, this guy just rise from the dead, right? Of course, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. But if you think about this, if you've read through the whole Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has demonstrated his authority from start to finish, right? I mean, you start reading back through it. Jesus called his disciples with authority. He taught with authority, they said, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. They said, who are you? You think you have authority to forgive sin? Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words, they're so authoritative, they don't pass away. He casts out legions of demons by his authority. He heals the sick, the lame, the blind, and even raises the dead because he has the authority to do that. And so as you're going through the gospel, you see authority, 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 authority. What does this mean, all authority now? The key is in the very sentence there in the text. He now says all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. You see, it's not the quality of Jesus' authority that changes. It's the extension of it. He went to the lost tribes of Israel, but now he's telling them the kingdoms of the earth will now belong to Christ. He's going to have people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He's going to extend his kingdom. And this authority is what is going to grant the apostles the ability to cross boundaries. What boundaries are they going to cross? They're going to cross socioeconomic boundaries. They're going to cross ethnic boundaries. They're going to cross all kinds of geographic boundaries. And they're going to do it because Christ's authority is behind them, granting them the ability to do this. Because of his resurrection, he's now granted the authority to extend his kingdom over every border. There are four occurrences. All is so important in this text that there's four occurrences of the word all in this story. It says Jesus has all authority. It's to make disciples of all nations, to observe all his commands. And he says, I will be with you always in the original language, all of the days. And you're supposed to grasp behind Christ is this pushing force, this, this striving force. His all is in this command, and his authority is totally in it. And when you begin to think through how this applies, it reminds me of a story of a friend of mine. I had a Hindu friend um, in India. and Him and I got into a conversation one time, and he had been sharing with me, and I would come to his house and many, many times. And one day he says, you know what the problem with you Christians is? He says, you think that you're right and everyone else is wrong. And I said to him, you think all roads lead to God, don't you? And he said, yeah, I believe that. I said, do you think you're right about that? He said, yeah. So I said, you think you're right and everyone else that disagrees with you is wrong. And he was just silent. Here's the the point. Sometimes as Christians, we're ashamed of... The exclusivity of Christianity. We believe somehow that we're loving and we're good, but we don't want to tell other people that Jesus is the way, even though he says he is. And it's a little embarrassing sometimes for us because we have this false idea that we're exclusive while everyone else is not. But let me tell you how truth works. If you go to the bank and you try to tell the bank that there are two different numbers in your bank account, they're going to tell you we're exclusive. If I tell you you have 10,000 dirhams, you don't have 10 million dirhams. If someone tells you two plus two is five and you argue with them that it's four, guess what? You're being exclusive. Truth excludes opposites. It's always the way it works. And anyone that claims anything is true is excluding its opposite. So you don't have to be ashamed. We're humble and we're loving, but we just have to realize that's the way truth works. And if Christ's authority is behind this, then we do it, not because we always understand everything, but because we believe it and we hold it to be true. The second thing we see in the text is not only the authority is behind disciple making, but the major portion of this text is dedicated to disciple making itself. We must focus our efforts always as people, as a church, as a community on making disciples. Now I'm going to define that so so it'll be helpful to you throughout this passage. But just come in and hear the heart of Jesus in verses 19 to 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now when you read this phrase, this very famous uh, statement of Jesus that's up on the screen here, you see clearly right? That there are several things happening. But in reality, when you study the original language of this text, all scholars agree there's only one verb really that's pushing this text. That is make disciples. The other verbs, going, baptizing, and teaching, they're all characteristics of making disciples. You see? This is how it's working. In English, we sometimes lose this Um, You can't always translate things perfectly and where it makes perfect sense and you get all the details. You you guys that speak multiple languages know this, right? And so I'm telling you what it's saying here is very simple. When we make disciples, what we're doing is we're going just like somebody probably at some point went and told you or you heard someone tell you, right? We're bringing them into the church by baptizing them, being a part of us. And eventually the process of teaching will go on as they learn about Christ, as they grow in their faith, and they themselves will go and repeat the same process. That's what's happening throughout this passage. And so it is going to evangelize, baptizing converts, and teaching them to be followers of Jesus. So let's just take those one at a time, going. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Now this is an action. Think of it as an arrow going out. From these 11 men. It's externally focused. And here's the point, guys Jesus didn't sit around and wait for humanity to come to him in heaven. He stepped off of his throne, he came down to the world, he gave up the most comfortable place in the world. Can you even imagine what life was like for Jesus in heaven? Why would you come to earth and be born in a stable? It's because God had a mission for him. And he is our example, and we follow him, making and going and making disciples. Listen, you'll have to get out of your comfort zone. Sometimes that means crossing the room and talking to people you've never met before. Sometimes it means making friendships with people that maybe you're uncomfortable with, but that is what going is. Sometimes it's giving your money to stuff. Sometimes it's doing things in a lot of ways, guys. But this is part of following Jesus. We give up our comforts. Sacrifice and courage have always been the hallmark of Christians. And that is what it is to be going people. He doesn't mean nations like we would think. Today we use nations. We very much, in our mind today, think of passport nations, right? The UAE, India, China, Pakistan, wherever, right? And We got all these countries, and we think of nations as a passport, a geographical nation, and political state. But that's really not what's meant here. In their time, there really was one big country. It was an empire of Rome, right? And what they have in mind here is much more what we would think of as something like families of people, like ethnic group type nations and this is the way the jewish people were this is a classic example is the jewish people so the jewish people in this time i mean they were spread all throughout the roman empire but whatever city you went to they had a synagogue they still didn't eat pork they had their little things that made them jewish people and this family was spread all over and this is the idea in this text behind the word nation the jewish people are going to cross into other kinds of people and this is what happened now, look around the room. Just for a second, guys. I know we live in this miracle room that we can't possibly recognize. But just think about the people in the room with you right now. How many nations are here? How many peoples are here? Do you, do you not know that this is a miracle? I'll, I'll never forget when we worked and lived in Madrid and Spain. The, the, the people of Spain, the, the actual Spanish people, are some of the most unreached people in the world. I mean, they're so hard to reach with the gospel. And in our church, one of the main ways we would see Spanish people get saved is they would walk into an international church and they would come in and every time they would say the same thing. How is it possible that you can have so many people together from so many places? You see, without even saying a word, just sitting in the room, the nations being present was a testimony. And it really is amazing, guys. And it's a powerful witness to the gospel. Jesus is going to be the blessing to all the families and peoples of the earth. Churches, you know, are very incredible. But, when, but a church that doesn't make disciples, it's like a car that doesn't have wheels. It's like a pager or an 8 track. Kids, some of you need to ask your parents what that is later. But a pager and an 8-track, how many of you still actually use a pager, right? Nobody uses a pager. Nobody uses an 8-track. They've lost their purpose. And this is the way a church is when it stops making disciples. When a church stops being a going church, it dies. When it becomes a club instead of an embassy, it dies. It just always happens. And When you think to yourself a church can be purposeless if it's not making disciples, one of the first things you think to me is, this can't be true, right? Surely, surely there's something more to this. Well, yeah, there is. It's a complicated thing to make disciples. But, but let me ask you one question today, just so you'll put this in perspective a little bit. Do you believe that God loves you? I mean, genuinely, do you believe that the gospel teaches that God loves you? Most Christians heartily will say, yes, I believe God loves me. Well, the second question I have for you is this one. Then why is it that he didn't take you to heaven immediately after you got saved? You don't think God loves you? And the reason he doesn't carry us immediately is not because he doesn't love us. It's because he has a purpose and a plan. That's why he left us here. Listen to me. In heaven, we're going to be together forever. We're going to enjoy fellowship. We're going to eat together. We're going to be in a new heaven and a new earth with no sin, no sickness, no pain, and no problems. But guess what? No lost people. No one to go to anymore. And now he leaves us as a church, and he gives us a purpose, and he says, go. Now is the time to go. The door in this world is shutting before Christ returns. And it's important that we're doing our part As a church, as a group, as an individual, to see the nations reached starting right here in this room. Starting in your neighborhood. And this is what it means to be a going community of Christians. The second thing he says is baptizing. He doesn't just stop with going. Because going makes converts. But making a convert and leaving them alone is a lot like people who abandon a baby, right? Someone comes to faith and they're born again and then they get abandoned and that leads to very many problems in Christian churches often because this is what has happened and that's not the call that he has no he fills us in on what's left for us to do and this may be a surprising fact I think as a matter of fact many people read this passage and they think to themselves you know how did this part get stuck in here right how did baptizing get put in here I mean We could just read the text and kind of skip through it. It would sound like this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded. And it fits perfect. Why would Jesus stop and take the time to mention something like baptism in the middle of probably the most foundational, important vision casting message that he has for the church? Why would he do that? It's because it's a foundational piece of Christianity. By what? it represents. Jesus is always bringing us back to the truth. Baptism is not essential for people to be saved. Don't hear me. Don't get me wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches, but it is essential in what it symbolizes, okay, in what it symbolizes. Newly born again disciples publicly identify with Jesus through baptism, and they join a new family. Just listen to the text. He says, Baptizing them in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the idea is that this is something like a spiritual adoption ceremony in which the name of Jesus, the name of the triune God, is placed on people. And now you bury it, you, you bear it, you carry that name around with you. You are a witness to it. And I have a friend, I call it a spiritual adoption ceremony, and I have a friend, he has two adopted children from two different ethnicities, and they look very different one from the other. But one thing I repeatedly hear his children say again and again is, this is my family. This is my father. And this is what it means In many ways to be a Christian. We get baptized. Yes, we identify with Jesus. The name of God is placed on us. But not only do we get a father, we get a family. It's the same moment. And we have brothers and sisters from all around the world, from all ethnicities. And we're brought into a specific community like ECC. And in it, we have a family. This is surely what it means to have church membership, to have a God who gives his son for my salvation and makes a covenant with me, does that not automatically connect me to all the others in his family? But I take a step forward and I choose to recognize that. In ECC, we make it explicit. We come forward and we say, yes, I want to be a part. I want to take on that mantle and responsibility of what it means to be a church member, what it means to be a Christian. You know, in ECC, we do many things like uh, membership meetings, like uh, church discipline. And they're all things tied to the gospel. And you may not have ever connected these things, but they're all tied together to this passage. Everything is about making disciples. And being a member is becoming the disciple, making the disciple, getting involved in that. And church discipline, listen, church discipline is not given to people because they don't pay their parking tickets. Church discipline is given because of serious public sin when someone takes the name of God on them and then blasphemes it by their action. They unwitness. They unmake disciples. And it's only after many attempts to go after people, to convince them to turn away from the sin, that's killing them and destroying their family, destroying their life, that that we end up having to do church discipline. But what we're doing is protecting the name. Being a witness and making disciples, baptism, church membership, churches, they're all connected. And a strong church is one that accepts and walks in the things God commands. This is a blessing, guys. You're truly in a very unique place that these things happen, and they happen in a biblical, God-honoring way. The last thing we read is that he says teaching. It's the third thing that characterizes making disciples. And so, not only is it a process by going and identifying with Christ and his people through baptism, it's seen in teaching his disciples to observe everything he's commanded. So, let me just point out a few details in the text in verse 20. It says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I just want to say something that should be obvious, but you know, teaching is not optional for Christian communities. The interesting thing is I've been able to live in five or six countries, I've traveled a lot, and I've seen many kinds of churches. Some are really fun and they're really cool, and they don't teach. Some are really ritualistic and they're really serious and they don't teach. And listen, if we're not teaching, we're failing to do the very thing Christ is calling us to do. And he calls us to observe. That means actually do it. Not just know it, but do it. This is what it means to be a Christian community I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that all of the things we do in ECC many people have questions like why do you do church this way why do you so many things are tied to just really foundational ideas like this why do we take the time to take a passage open it up explain it line by line verse by verse phrase by phrase why do we do that because we believe that that is what we're called to do that is what it means to teach his words not my words then say hey Wally be really entertaining and teach your words No, I've got to teach his words that's my job that's what I'm called to do and I'm very happy to do that and this is what we do we come to church and I want you to think through a metaphor with me think of a plant this is kind of easy to grasp right we know that plants grow and one of the amazing thing about plants is they need sunlight they need water right that's what they need that's like their essentials and Christians have essentials too we we need God we, really, the service that we do that's really important and primary and necessary is the gathering, weekly gathering we have on Fridays for the church. That's something we see as fundamental, essential, right? But hey, we offer all kinds of other things, good things like life groups, like being involved with women's ministries and men's ministries and children and teens. and We, we want to equip parents to be disciple makers in their home. We want to take this command and spread it in every direction, right? That's that's what we're attempting to do because this is what Jesus commands. And all of those things, they may not be sunlight and they may not be water, but let me tell you, they're fertilizer. They'll make you grow in a way spiritually if you participate and you get involved. If you're in a group where you can confess your sins, where you can ask for help, where you can share your problems, where you can study the Word, it's like fertilizer to your spiritual growth. And so understand that all of these things we're doing we're not doing them because we think it's a good idea we think this is the way Jesus commands us to teach and to make disciples it's very very key it's very important and those things are very difficult to do online you know I know many people love in a consumer age we live in a consumer age right where everything is like Um, You know, you get your WhatsApp messages and, hey, come by this. And everybody's trying to convince you to go eat out at their restaurant. And it's all consumer, consumer, consumer. And many times the church sends out a message and it's almost like consumerish from people, right? It's like tea or coffee after a meal. We see church, many people see church in a consumer way and they see it like tea and coffee after a meal. It's good, but it's an option, right? But we just don't understand the concept. Being a part of a Christian community is not an option in the Bible. It's something God calls us to, and we're disciple makers, making disciples, planting churches, going about doing it in the way God commands us to. So let me just address three things that I think are common misconceptions about this command, okay? and If this is you, I hope you just listen, take it to heart, and maybe this will encourage you. The first misconception that people have, that is the wrong idea they have about the Great Commission is that it was only for these 11 apostles or it's only for pastors or missionaries or missions organizations. They tend to push the command off to someone else. Like, this doesn't belong to me. I don't own this. This is someone else's, right? And just the text itself just really doesn't allow that. If you see this text, you can't think this is the apostles only, right? Think about it. You've got 11 guys that are charged with making disciples in every nation. And Jesus ends the command by saying... I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. They surely died before the end of the age. No, the idea was that he was giving a command to them and that through them this command would spread through his disciples and that it would be repeated again and again and again. And it's not just for pastors and it's not just for missionaries. Praise God for pastors and missionaries. But guess what? The whole church has got to rally around them or they're going to, they're going to die spiritually. They can't do this by themselves. And they need you. And you need them. So that's just not an idea. And mission organizations, they're wonderful. I used to work for a big one. And in 2013, I had a massive shift in my thinking, just a big shift. You know what happened to me? I worked for a mission organization that would send us to very remote places. I remember I used to live in a town. You had to drive 14 hours to get there. There was no plane. So remote. So remote. And I would get out there. And you know what was funny? There was already churches there. I was trying to reach a particular group of people that were hard to reach. Yeah. But there were already some churches. And he, the thing I wanted to do was work through the church. I wanted to help the Christians reach to these communities. They were willing to do it. You know what the mission told me? Go around them. Don't work in the church. And I'm just going to tell you, I believe more than ever that this command was not given to mission agencies. This command was given to the community of Jesus, the church. And this is what God is calling ECC to be. You know why we're excited about planting churches in ECC? We're excited because we know every time we do it, we're making disciples. You can't plant a church without making disciples. It always happens. And it's exciting. In Ruas, guys, we pray that we see God multiply. Many people come to faith. Many disciples are made. And praise God because you're behind that. You're praying for that. You're giving to that. You're with us. We're not alone. And, I, and I'm thankful for that. And so this is the church's job. I think about Adam and Eve. When you think about Adam and Eve, when Eve picks the fruit and she hands it to Adam, and as you're reading through this account, it goes on to say that when God confronts, he doesn't confront Eve. He actually confronts Adam. which is, should catch your attention in the text. He comes to Adam. And many times churches push off things on missionaries. They push off things. Christians push off things on pastors. Or They push off things on mission agencies. But on Judgment Day, when they appear before God, he's not going to say, did the mission agency do it? He's going to look at the church and say, did you do it? Were you a part of it? Because this is all of our call. you with me? Does that make sense? The second misconception, I think, about this is that Disciple-making is something that happens in a classroom only, right? It's like this idea that I'm going to take course one, two, three, and four of how to be a disciple, and boom, I'm done. Like now I'm a disciple, I'm ready to go. It's like a classroom kind of mentality. And this, sadly, I believe is probably propagated a lot by my country, okay? But this idea is really, if you read through the gospel and you let Jesus define making disciples, what does he do? He goes out, he gets guys, and he says, hey, come live with me, be with me. Walk with me. Do ministry with me, right? They were Jesus' apprentices. They walked around with him. They learned how to do ministry from him. If there's anything I'm really excited about in this church, it's the apprenticeship program we have. You may not know this. ECC has a program where we bring people. And usually from countries where there are few churches or are very needy of churches. One of those arrived yesterday. Be coming to church pretty soon with us. Praise God. And they go through training. They walk with the pastors. They walk with the staff. They read books. They learn. And they they get involved. And you know what they do? They go out and they plant churches that are healthy, that are biblical, that are God-honoring. And this this is what it means. It's not for classroom only. Are you involved in someone's life and is someone involved in yours? I just challenge you. If you don't have a person that you can confess your struggles to, find someone. It's not classroom only. This is... Get in my life, I'll get in yours, and we help each other. The last misconception is that making disciples is only for the guy who's teaching or preaching, right? The only, it's only for that guy. He's the disciple maker. Everybody else is not. But I just want to challenge you in that. Have you ever thought of a, if you think of a body illustration A teacher or preacher is a lot like the mouth. He's speaking for the body. But in all reality, he can't feed himself. He can't walk. He can't move, right? He depends on all the other pieces to get that mouth moving around. And this is the way it is in making disciples. Listen to me. You today have gifts. Maybe some of you have gifts of mercy. And you don't understand that every time you sit down and you listen to another person tell you their problems and you relieve them, another Christian tell you their problem, and you relieve them of your burden, you're making them more like Jesus than they were before. You're making disciples by listening to people. And when you serve in a million ways in this church, the Maharaj team is absolutely incredible. The ushers are amazing. When you come and serve, guess what? Every person you serve, you're serving them for the purpose of making disciples. I used to tell this To all the people that were in our team in Madrid, and I would say, because we'd serve cookies, and I would say, you know, you think you're not important, but every cookie you share is a conversation between Christians. And they build each other up. And we just, guys, I wish the Lord would open our eyes up to see when we teach children, when we teach families, when we meet with people for coffee, when we build people up and just listen. We're making disciples. We don't understand each one of us are doing it. You don't have any idea that your encouragement to that one person was just enough that made them want to share the gospel with somebody. happens a lot, and we have no idea. And so I just challenge you not to be of that mind. The last point in our text today comes from Jesus himself ending the command by saying, in verse 20b, he says, And behold, behold, I'm with you always, To the end of the age. I just want you to think with me, why would Jesus need to end this command like that? What's the reason he would feel the necessity of telling his disciples? I mean, hasn't he told them all along, I'm gonna be with you? He's giving them the Holy Spirit. But I want you to understand that this command of making disciples, and those of you who do it and try to do it, it's hard, it's difficult. You know, being a missionary, I had a very naive view when I first started out. I thought, oh, all these people, they're lost people. They're like people drowning, you know, and all they need is somebody to reach down and pick them up. But I've discovered that when I reached down to people who were dying in their sins and I tried to pick them up, they bit my hand. They didn't want to be saved. They didn't want help. And oftentimes it was only after the 10th, 15th, 20th time coming to them that they listened to me. And you know what, guys? It's hard. It can be difficult. Listen to the text and behold, these are flashing lights biblically, I will be with you always. You're not going to do this without me. You'll, people, listen, if you go to make disciples, one of the first things you're going to discover is people are very hard. And you'll get hard too. And you'll give up. You'll stop loving people when that's the powerful thing is that even though we're rejected, they love us. What does the Bible say? We love him because he first loved us. Let that motivate you. Let that move you. Think about Christ's love for you. He's with you. I am with you, he says. What a powerful presence. What a powerful message. So this command, like all businesses, I I know many of you work for businesses and you make decisions in that business. Like all businesses, the resources of the business follow the vision and the strategy of the business. So Christ starts by laying out his vision and his strategy and he says, you you know what? I'm the resource. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to push you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to be with you. He's the resource. This is the beauty of it. But for many of you here today, or some of you at least, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're not following Him. And so I'm just going to take a moment to explain to you what is this thing of making disciples. What is the piece of that gospel? You see, the Bible tells us very clearly that God is many, many things, right? He's many, many uh, attributes and qualities. But it over and over tells us He is a holy righteous God. And this holiness and this righteousness, it cannot stand in the presence of sin. It cannot. And all throughout the Bible, people are terrified because of that. But it also tells us in the same Bible, running as if it were two lines running parallel, that he's loving and gracious and he's saving people. And they're running side by side. And you're thinking, how can this God who's holy and this God who's just How can he also be loving? How do these things brought together? How can he have a relationship with people? And the Bible tells us that the two lines meet. They collide head on like trains at the cross. And the God of the universe is pouring out his judgment and he's showing his holiness and he's showing his wrath and he's showing his righteousness by punishing Jesus for sins. And at the same moment, he's showing his love. He's loving people by offering his son. And so he brings his holiness and his love together on the cross. And then he commands us to go to people and say, hey, Christ's power is the one to give you a new life. His resurrection life flows through his people. But the only way to be with Jesus is to turn away from your sins, to confess faith in Jesus and to follow him. That is what it means to be a believer. That is what it means to be a Christian and to believe in the gospel. So as we close today, I just want you to meditate on this and this idea. What is the vision of the church? And how can you, with your gifts, your resources, and your person, be involved? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you so much, Lord, for this time that we've had together, opening your word. We thank you from your for your love, for your kindness, for your goodness, for who you are. We just pray, Lord. We pray today that ECC, for many years to come, would just be a powerhouse for the gospel, for your grace extending to people, for churches being planted, for nations being reached, for souls being saved, and that we would partner with many people. God, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing people to see many other nations reached. Let us be your hands and feet, Lord. Let us walk before you in holiness as a church. Let us be members and followers and believers. Let us be disciple makers for your glory, we pray. We just ask that you do these things, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.